Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. And depending on what time you're listening to this, morning, afternoon, evening, um, it's morning here in the States and in the er, afternoon for Alexander, who's joining us to talk about his new book, Incitement. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast. Thanks so much for having me. And I like the uh, Truman Show style uh, introduction. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Well, for our listeners, Alexander Milaguru Hitchens has written this amazing book on excite- incitement, not excitement, but we will have lots of excitement as well. Incitement, Anwar Awalaki's Western Jihad. It's an amazing book on Awalaki and so much detail is thrown into it. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this discussion. And for our listeners, Alexander is a lecturer in terrorism and radicalization at King's College in London, and he is also the research director at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. So thank you for coming on the show, Alex. And why don't we start off with you giving our listeners that might not know much about Awolaki, who is Anwar Awolaki and why is he an important figure? So Anwar al-Awlaki, um, for, for most people uh, who, who follow um, issues related to terrorism, extremism in the West, um, is a sort of well-known American-born al-Qaeda uh, recruiter and preacher, I should say was, um, who was eventually assassinated um, under the Obama administration. Um, but the book sort of gives a, a wider story and uh, certainly... Uh, looks a lot at his impact as a recruiter and radicalizer uh, among Western uh, Muslims or Muslims living in the West. Um, but also, really, um, if you were a young Muslim in America in the 90s or in Britain in the 90s, and maybe you weren't that attached to your religion uh, through perhaps maybe your family was not very observant or for whatever reason you were sort of exploring Islam maybe for the first time in the 90s, you most likely, if you didn't speak Arabic, uh, would have come across Anwarulaki back then. Uh, and because back then, he was an emerging and increasingly influential Islamic preacher uh, in America, based both in San Diego and in Virginia, um, who, was, who did a number of very sort of pioneering things when it comes to Islamic preaching in America. Uh, and I, we can sort of place him as a, a conservative, a Muslim preacher, uh, we, and in the book, I sort of place him in the category of activist, activist Salafi, and I can get into that uh, as we go along. But what the book tries to capture at the beginning is is why was he popular initially? Uh, because that's quite a unique trait when we're talking about the sort of pantheon of um, Western or English-speaking jihadist preachers, uh, people like uh, Anjam Chowdhury, for those who know uh, the topic uh, in detail, or Abu Hamza al-Masri or Abdullah al-Faisal. There are other English-speaking jihadist preachers. Uh, Allah, he's not the first, won't be the last, but I argue that he's by far the most effective for a number of reasons. And one of the main reasons is, unlike all these others I've mentioned, he started his career and he started becoming known as a mainstream preacher in the West, uh, with a number of quite senior positions in mosques. Uh, his final one in Virginia, the Dal Hijra Mosque as, a, as Imam, you know, it, it was a very prestigious position to, to, to have, and they don't just give it to anyone. The Dal Hijra is an influential mosque that was set up by Muslim Brotherhood uh, emigres uh, 
from from the Middle East, uh, and and so unlike others, unlike the others that came after or before him, he had this basis of support and uh, among uh, or, or of, of following among uh, Western. Muslims uh, of, of the kind of, you know, who were in their 20s, usually in the 90s. And with a couple of things he did that hadn't yet been done at the time, and this is things I, I discovered as I did my research and spoke to colleagues of his and acquaintances of his, contemporaries of his who knew what he was doing at the time, as well as followers of his. Uh, one of the big things he did was, was translate what's known as, as Sira, which is essentially historical accounts of Muhammad. And there's also other historical accounts of his uh, most well-known or respected followers or, or, and successors. Uh, this is not from the Quran or the Hadith necessarily, which are the two sort of primary texts. Uh, these are other kind of histories that have been written uh, by Arab historians, Arab Muslim historians over the centuries, a number of very famous ones. And he essentially takes these and he translates them into English. And he does it, in, it orally, right? He doesn't write it down. Uh, this is all done via audio video. And again, we're talking the 90s here. And, and these stories hadn't really been translated into English before. And not only had they not been translated into English, they certainly hadn't been translated into an accessible American uh, English. Uh, and so he was doing things that really hadn't yet been done at that time. And he was also distributing his work very effectively through this emerging scene in America, uh, in the Islamic scene, in conservative Islam. Um, there was a lot of uh, sort of recording of your lectures on audio tape back then and, and disseminating them at mosques and also at uh, conferences and, and, and wider you know, sort of meetings. And Aulaki actually kind of professionalized that, that whole industry in a way, not him, actually a businessman behind him that I can get into uh, later, but uh, a very sort of savvy Saudi businessman heard these lectures early on when Aulaki was in San Diego as an imam and saw huge potential in marketing this. So he, what, when we had in the sort of the circuit of conservative Islamic preachers of the time, as I said, the, the output was these sort of raggedy audio tapes, you know, those kind of ones that uh, if people remember the, the recording ones where you didn't have any stickers or logos or cool boxes, just a sort of, you know, a handwritten label on it, sort of lectures. That was what they, what's what it looked like until Alaki's kind of business uh, partner came along or, or, or this businessman who sponsored him and created this very professional uh, output uh, on CD as well as on audio, but in very, you know, flashy cases. It's all edited very effectively. Um, they even, you know, when Aulaki would refer to a, a, a Quranic verse, it would cut to a, um, a, a, a sort of recitation uh, being done by sort of professional Quranic reciters. So anyway, it, it sort of, he was very effective uh, early on at marketing himself. And as he evolved, for a number of reasons we can get into as his work evolved, um, he slowly began preaching much more violent forms of jihad. After 9-11, you know, within a couple of years, he'd endorsed jihadism, had moved to Yemen, joined Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and was behind re the recruitment and plotting uh, of a number of terrorist attacks uh, that I cover in the book, most notably probably uh, the attempted bombing uh, of a flight on December 2009 by Umar Farouk Abdul the notorious underwear bomber who was sent directly from Yemen by Olaki. So um, a sort of long-ish explanation of who he is and why he was um, influential. Uh, and essentially that's what the book does, of course, in, in much more detail. And why don't we go back a bit when Awalaki is in America and he was a very influential preacher, as you mentioned, what was 
his views on Islam and specifically how did Salafism in America influence him? Sure. So I, in, in order to sort of place Al-Laki in, in a wider context, one of the, the goals of the book is to explain his own his ideas. It's essentially, it's an intellectual history rather than a biography, right? So the, one of the first things you need to do when you do that, uh, that type of analysis is, is place the person's work within the historical context and within the milieu of other thinkers similar to them at the time or, or, or um, ideologues or preachers. Uh, so in America, uh, and so there's a sort of short-ish history of Salafism in America in the book that hasn't really been done before either. So it's one of the number of uh, kind of more original components of the work. And what it does is sort of explain what the scene looked like when Awlaki arrived and why he was able to take advantage of certain circumstances at the time. So um, if we were to understand Salafism as, uh, you know, a sort of um, fundamentalist uh, movement within Islam that seeks to take both the practice and the uh, belief of the of the faith back to its foundational years, the time of Muhammad and then the sort of two generations that, that followed him. Um, so the, in both in how, in how they interpret the religion, usually, you know, uh, foregoing any, any sources really other than the primary sources. So essentially asking followers to ignore uh, all the scholarship that has taken place within Islam uh, from its foundation till today and essentially go back to the original work and it's all there all the information you need is there you don't need a third party so that's essentially what Islam, uh, Salafism is but it has been categorized in a number of different ways or broken down uh, and one of the more popular breakdowns is into three categories which are uh, quietist Salafis the, essentially who believe that you must purify Islam and Islamic belief that has been corrupted over years of, for a number of different reasons. Um, but it's done really only through dawah, which is the calling others to the faith, and, and studying and education, uh, a belief really that there should, there's no place for political activism or involvement in politics or contemporary, really, geopolitical discussions. They stay out of that, essentially out of a belief that until every single Muslim on earth is following Islam properly or in their view properly, uh, following Salafi Islam, there's no point in pursuing any uh, political projects because all of those will be will be polluted and tainted by beliefs that are not pure. So they'll say, you know, with the Palestine issue, for example, the famous Salafi scholars have told Muslims, you know, actually just leave. There's no point in having a conflict there. Um, that, you know, the Muslims, they are not prepared ideologically, theologically. You might as well leave the territory and, and, and not fight. Uh, so that kind of, if you can imagine... Um, you know, a lot of Islamists, for example, wouldn't be big fans of that. And that is the kind of thing that, that separates them. So you have quietist Salafis uh, and you have what we can call activist Salafis who are have very similar theological view of Islam, who interpret it very similarly, but who's, who are much more willing to be involved in, in politics and activism and, and are influenced by Islamist trends within the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. Uh, and we should say, you know, Salafism and Islamism have a relationship, but they are two quite separate traditions uh, from quite separate with quite separate foundational backgrounds. But essentially what we can call Salafi activism, the second category, activist Salafism, as this combination between Salafi theology and Islamist activism. And so they are involved in politics and protests. And they will even set up political parties. We've seen in Egypt, famously the Al-Nur party. Um, and in Saudi Arabia, of course, we had the Sahwa movement from the 90s. Um, and a sort of branch of this activist Salafism 
morphed over the years and um, from the sort of time of the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union and then uh, rolling into Iraq, uh, Iraq war and everything that's gone on since, there has been a, a sort of branching out from the activism into what we'll call the jihadi strand of Salafism, right? And, and that is essentially people who have often come from the activist strand. And the book actually explains how Awlaki essentially embodies this, the evolution from sort of Islamist influenced Salafism to jihadism. It's, it's a boundary between the two, which you can quite easily cross. Um, so these, these three categories, quietist, activist, jihadi. And in America, we had really from the 60s, 70s, um, an early uh, quietist Salafi scene that emerged and was very inward looking, um, asked you know, people who it was recruiting to really look to the Saudi sheikhs for all um, interpretation and understanding and reading of Islam. And it was essentially this very closely connected to the Saudi uh, religious establishment movement in the United States that kind of flourished um, surprisingly, um, for some, but actually there's some very uh, interesting reasons why, among uh, sort of uh, disadvantaged black communities, uh, particularly on the East Coast, and th they are still there today, there's quite large black Salafi communities in, in places like Philadelphia and New Jersey. Um, and as the thing with that type of Salafism, though, is that it's quite niche. And it, it, again, it asks you to not involve yourself in geopolitics, uh, it really look at uh, anything related to politics, but simply look inwards, study, and connect yourself only with those who really share very close beliefs. It's very kind of inward looking and closed. And so really, it didn't have a huge audience. Um, and as things evolved in the US, you also had the emergence of the activist strand of Salafism that was much more interesting uh, for a wider audience, was engaging with wider politics, was, was sort of um, using Islam to explain uh, political situations of the day and particularly issues with, with Muslims that, that Muslims were facing around the world. And, and it had much more uh, activist zeal to it and was connected to activist movements in Saudi Arabia, including the Sahwa. Um, so when Alaki emerges, these two strands of Salafism in America are competing and the activist strand is doing better. Um, because it has this wider appeal. And so Alaki really was able to take advantage of further problems that the movement faced. Um, uh, again, even though the activist Salafi movement in the US uh, was attracting more people, it was still quite a scholarly movement. It still was led by scholars. Um, it was still asking quite a lot of people in terms of the level of knowledge you needed and the level of study. Alaki came in and essentially did a light version of this and said, you know, all he was really going to do was do these translations uh, of the early histories of Muhammad, give them new life, give them American context. And this was a very accessible form of preaching at the time. And it really attracted a huge amount of people who loved to listen to the stories, who, um, who felt they were getting a good Islamic education out of this um, and didn't really need to hit the books in any serious way. Um, so, you know, Awlaki kind of emerged as a sort of non-scholarly activist Salafi um, at, at a time when really that didn't exist. Uh, he kind of created a niche for himself where he emerged from the, from the activist strand, but really created this own, this own thing. And, and that really made him pretty much the most popular preacher uh, of his kind in the U.S. by the time he left uh, shortly after 9-11. Uh, Would you say that the period between Awalaki being considered more of a scholar, so later on in his life, to 
someone that had a very acute communication strategy. When did that take place? Was it after he left the U.S. or did you see that happening even early on in his time in the States? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to note with him. I think he really early on saw himself as a leadership figure, as someone who was who was going to be recruiting people to do something where it was it if, if just simply to convert people to Islam and, and, and practice it properly. Um, and later on, as we find uh, to actually get people to commit, you know, or to be involved in certain forms of activism, in, including, you know, violent jihad. Uh, but, you know, we see signs really early on that that was how, what he saw himself as. And even at, uh, when he went, he studied at uh, GWU in DC and I got hold of his academic transcript, in fact, and, Oh, wow. uh, he, he got something like a 3.75, I think, GPA. Uh, and the, the kind of things he studied um, were leadership in organizations. I think one of the modules was called Leadership in Organizations. Um, he was reading literature on, on how to be a leader, uh, group dynamics in organization, things like this. Um, and so really, you know, it, we're talking kind of early, mid-90s studying that. Uh, so obviously he saw himself as a leader. He saw something in himself and he, and he had, and it's, he certainly was right about that. He had a charisma. He had, a, he was smart. Um, and he knew how to, you know, get people to, um, not li- not just listen to him, but really, uh, adopt the worldview he was preaching. Um, so, uh, but as far as the communication strategy, you know, I, what I would say is really what we had in the, in his pre jihad career. And we'll put that you know, at around, you know, in, in 2005, he translated a, a text called Constance on the Path of Jihad, uh, written by an Al-Qaeda, a Saudi Al-Qaeda ideologue called Yusuf Al-Uyairi. The translation was not just a translation, it was a very favorable, positive um, uh, sort of analysis of it, as well as translation. And it was an endorsement, right? And so we can date Al-Laki's actual full public endorsement of jihadism to 2005. Um, and from that point on, we saw a much more clear communication strategy, which I can get into. But early, earlier than that, in his sort of early lectures, the things that were being distributed on CD, uh, things that were called um, The Life of Muhammad, for example, two-part series, you know, dozens of hours of, of lectures, of discussions about, uh, the, you know, the life and times and experiences of, 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 uh, of Muhammad. In that, I don't think you see a communication strategy, but you certainly see um, what are you know, very effective ways of finding resonance for messages, uh, which is, of course, a very important part of communication is, you know, you create a message or an idea, but you need to find a way for it to actually work um, with the audience you are targeting. You know, for an American, you got to say, you got to put it one way. For a Belgian, you got to put it another. It's all relative to what their, their own context is. So what he was very effective at doing then was juxtaposing certain moments, key moments, and often violent moments in the history of Islam, and putting them into present day, and, and really placing Muslims of, of today uh, in the role uh, of uh, sort of potential heroes in this story of Islam that began in the seventh century, and, and is going to go until Judgment Day. And so he was able to put, you know, create, you know, sort of make Muslims feel as if they have this opportunity uh, to, to inject themselves into this great story and do everything they can to further it, its goals or the, move, the movement's aims. Uh, so we saw uh, very effective ability, um, uh, efforts at doing that. So not simply translating the history of Muhammad, but being able to, you know, sort of give a modern spin to it and also use the very you know, kind of cultural references 
um, the kind of things that most Salafis of the time would never have done. He was, you know, he would uh, ref you know, reference an article by Thomas Friedman, for example, or um, he uh, referenced a, sort of a Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, you know, these kind of references among Salafis of the time in America would have, were unheard of, but he was able to kind of, you know, get a sense of um, the kind of, you know, much more Western sources that he was able to 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 use, and and that were going to resonate more with his audience. But as he developed towards jihadism, what we saw was this ability to shorten things, you know, make them more uh, concise, uh, more accessible. They weren't just they weren't long long lectures anymore. They would often be sort of responses to certain events that were taking place. Um, and what was key, really, at this point, and and as his career developed, was to really sell the idea. That the the most important thing he had to do was to sell the idea of the war on Islam, right? And we, you know, the, it's certainly no news to anyone that, that, you know, one of the centrifugal forces of the jihad movement is the concept of a war on Islam taking place. And of course, you know, the book acknowledges that as being important, but what it, I suppose what the contribution is, how do you sell that idea to someone, right? So you can sell it fairly easily to say a Palestinian or an Iraqi during the Iraq war or an Afghan during the Afghan war. It would be fairly easy to say, you know, someone who's experiencing uh, bombing of their village or perhaps their family killed, it wouldn't be too hard to sell this conspiracy theory to them, right? That there's a, a war in Islam taking place and its 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 goal is to essentially wipe you out. But for a Westerner, uh, that, you know, the experiences of a Western Muslim may not, uh, and particularly in the run-up to 9-11, before 9-11, um, wouldn't, you know, selling the idea of a war in Islam, you know, is, wouldn't have, it's not as straightforward. So how did Al-Laki do that? Well, he found ways essentially to bring that war on Islam home to Westerners, to make it more of a reality to their own experiences and make it resonate with them. So it wasn't, of course, bombs and bullets flying past them, but um, he was finding ideas and, and it, he was finding little sort of fissures within sort of liberal thought and discussion uh, to try to find ways to uh, show the hypocrisy of, of Western thought. Um, and in fact, the maliciousness of Western secular thought towards Islam. And he would be able to, uh, for example, um, one of the most popular uh, kind of discussions, you know, related to Islam and, and, and jihadism after 9-11 was this discussion of um, moderate, so-called moderate Islam, right? And, and uh, there was, especially soon after 9-11, a lot of sort of people searching, as it were, for the right type of Muslim, uh, the, the, the Muslim that the West could endorse, um, that could fight against these deviant interpretations of the jihadists, right? And a lot of efforts have been expended, a lot of discussion has, has taken place about all that. Um, and anyone even with half an eye or an ear towards that, that discussion or, or towards, you know, politics would, would be aware of this. And so Alaki was, would take that, that discussion and, and present it, in fact, as part of the war on Islam and say, you know, all these discussions you keep hearing about moderate Islam actually that's part of the ideological component of this conflict. Um, and it's an attempt to change Islam, to tailor it to Western liberal secular thought so that it can, it can um, assimilate as it were, but in doing so be totally transformed and essentially destroyed. And so when he saw discussions of jihad, you know, not really, you know, being misinterpreted by, by uh, Salafi jihadists as a violent endeavor, you know, claims that you often see about jihad really means, you know, an inner spiritual struggle, a nonviolent struggle. You know, the truth is, the complicated truth is, um, no, I don't think any conservative Muslim would tell you that, there, that there's any legitimate interpretation of jihad other than 
um, as that physical violent struggle. And so that's a difficult, these are the constant kind of problems that, that, that there are out there. Um, and so Alaki would say, look, these attempts to reinterpret your religion are actually really an effort to destroy it and defang it and, and change it beyond recognition. And that's the war on Islam that you're experiencing, that you need to respond to, that's happening on your doorstep. And it's the beginning of what will eventually become the bombs and bullets. You will be oppressed and killed eventually, um, even in America, even in Europe. And he would be very effective at offering examples to get people to believe this kind of fear mongering. Um, for example, in Britain, when he was where he was living shortly after he left the U.S., uh, he gave a, a talk where um, he he knew, you know, when he's selling this idea of of you know Muslims uh, facing a sort of multifaceted threat, it was a, it was a hard sell. Uh, and he said, "Look, you, you know, I know you guys may think that I'm overselling this this idea of a threat uh, coming your way, but you know that's exactly what say Muslims in in, in Bosnia uh, believed." Um, and for a very long time, they lived side by side with the non-Muslim neighbors. And all it took was this ultra-nationalist uh, sort of fascist in Milosevic to come along and, and uh, create this sort of jingoistic nationalist fervor. And it didn't take long before there was a genocide of Muslims on Europe's doorstep, about which Europe uh, did little about until it was basically too late. So he essentially point to examples like this, which are very well known as, you know, tools that have been used to radicalize Muslims for a long time, particularly the Bosnian Jihad, and say, you know, that's, don't be so complacent, because that's exactly what they used to think like, uh, until the next day, they, all they knew, or the next thing they knew that, you know, all the, the, the men were being taken out of the villages and never to be seen again. So he was very effective at taking all these, these moments and these issues and weaving together this tapestry of great threat that Muslim, Western Muslim faced, and really, if you're a movement leader trying to get people to, to take part in what is quite high risk activism and jihadism in the West, the first thing you've got to do is create a real sense of, of existential threat, right? And he was very, very good at doing that really throughout his career. Would you say that his target audience was mainly Western Muslims or was there an aim to influence others, maybe non-Muslims, and of course, Muslims outside of the West? For sure, his main audience was Western Muslims, English speaking in particular. But what, what we've seen, both in the latter stages of, career, of his career, when he joined Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and was creating propaganda for them through magazines like Inspire, uh, what we saw near the end of his life and, and since has been actually a, a translation of his work into in most languages that I that I know, or most language, you know, most of the the known uh, sort of major languages, uh, and, and I was just reading a book the other day called "Many Rivers, One Sea" about militancy in Bangladesh, Islamic militancy in Bangladesh, and, and in there I found that um, Awlaki was incredibly influential among Bangladeshi Islamists who were killing cartoonists and and satirists and politicians. So you may, if anyone follows what's happening there, you have these very reactionary. Um, Islamist Bangladeshis who are essentially rebelling against the encroachment, as they see it, of liberal secular thought and, and uh, commentary. And they are essentially killing, murdering um, people who they view as, as being part of that. And Awlaki is, in fact, referred to a lot there because he was uh, one of the main uh, spreaders of the idea that you should kill people who um, insult the religion, let alone uh, do anything physical against it. So... Uh, 
I think without really, I don't think it was necessarily his intention, but we, we did, act, we have seen his work resonate beyond, but really in his time when he was alive, his audience was absolutely um, people living in, in, in Western countries and usually English speaking, because the references he was making were very specific to experiences that uh, that audience would have been, would have had at the time or was having. So in that sense, you know, it, very, very much so. He was because he was fulfilling a role, really, that wasn't being done, which was um, firstly in the 90s, you know, sort of translating things that hadn't really been done in English. And after that, translating jihadist works that hadn't been accessible. And I mentioned to you Constance on the Path of Jihad translating, being translated. But he, that was one of a number of texts that he made available in English that had not been up until that point. And the kind of text that if you, you know, look at the computer of, uh, of you know, most uh, incarcerated American jihadists would probably be, you know, in their reading lists. Uh, so it was not just a matter of finding ways to make messages resonate, but also a way, he was also simply making the messages accessible in English full stop. Uh, and again, that showed his particular focus or interest was getting Western Muslims on board with the idea of the global jihad movement in a way that hadn't really happened yet. Uh, so really, if we can imagine global jihadism and groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS as part of what we can describe as a social movement called the global jihad movement, Al-Laki should be seen as, as essentially the de facto leader of its American or Western English uh, speaking uh, component. And he was really one of the main people who drove the establishment of that as a movement in the West by translating these texts, making them resonate, um, and using his legitimacy that he had gained over years of, of his career to push ideas that others like him, as I mentioned, these other jihadi preachers, Abdullah al-Faisal, Abu Hamza al-Masri, they may have been saying the same thing, but they would have always have been seen by, their, they would have always had a niche audience. They would have been thought, they would always have been thought of as those jihadist preachers. Al-Laki wasn't for very long thought, thought of as that. So when he started injecting jihad into his wider discussion of Islam, he was much more effective at presenting jihadism really as a natural component of Islam in a way that the other guys really weren't able to do because they were only really banging, about, banging on about jihadism. That's it. And so it was easy to dismiss them, but much harder in Al-Laki's case. He was able to really present uh, the, the pursuit of violent jihad really as an uncontroversial component uh, of Islamic belief. And that's not actually that easy to do. And I think for me, thinking about his legacy, I guess you could call it, is that fact that his work has almost transcended groups. It is really part of the global jihadist movement. It's not just specifically for individuals that maybe align with Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Like he has transcended so much through the work that he's produced. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, the, the, the final chapter of the book looks at his legacy, as you mentioned, and, and uh, particularly the use that ISIS made of his work soon after their attempts to start reaching out to Westerners. Uh, among the first uh, things that they produced were, were videos, ISIS videos, but the voiceover was an Al-Laki speech. One of the first ones was, that they used was a 2006 lecture that he gave where he praised the establishment then of the Islamic State in Iraq under Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. So praising, firstly, the, the predecessor organization to ISIS was a useful thing for them. 
but also what he said about the establishment of ISIS. You know, if you were to read it and not be told that you were reading al-Laki, you would have thought you may have been reading Baghdadi or another ISIS ideologue, because what he talks about is the significance of ISI, the Islamic State in Iraq, being set up in 06, was, was placed in this wider context of this is the region that has been prophesized as, as where these final battles will take place. Uh, he specifically mentions Dabik, which is a key town that much uh, the ISIS made much of as, a, as the, uh, the sort of prophesied site of the fight, final fight between good and evil uh, preceding the apocalypse. Al-Laki saw the um, recruitment power of that message as well in 06. Uh, we often talk about ISIS being this sort of apocalyptic organization and bringing in this idea of uh, helping usher in the apocalypse and that being quite a useful tool to get people to join. Because, of course, if you give, start giving a bit of a time limit to your opportunity to be part of this movement, you may create a sense, more of a sense of urgency. So, essentially, if you are really saying that your activities are, are part of this prophecy that is leading to the end of, of times and to Judgment Day, then what you're saying is, is that the train essentially now is leaving the station as far as your opportunity to do your part for Islam goes. Uh, and... And so that is that, that giving it more urgency in a way that Al-Qaeda never did as far as establishing an Islamic state or getting into that millenarian stuff, uh, that gave a, an extra impetus and urgency to the ISIS message. But actually, Al-Laki recognized the power of that in 06. And so it's no coincidence that one of the first things that uh, ISIS used to reach out to Westerners was that speech by Al-Laki. And ever since, you know, he's not referred to constantly in their official work, but he is referred to warmly. He, um, and often he's, they, they are essentially using his stuff without even necessarily citing him or giving him the credit. But even their, their strategy, uh, their lone actor uh, terrorism strategy in the West really was, was initially developed partly by Olaki uh, in, in sort of the, 20, the early 2010s, uh, 2010, 2011, uh, maybe the, the late part of the, the previous decade. So we, we see a lot of co continued resonance. And, you know, recently, I think we had the trial of the uh, Koachi brothers uh, starting again. Um, uh, the, the two individuals who uh, attacked the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris. Uh, this issue, these issues are still going on. Of course, Al-Laki sent one, essentially was, was a big part of that, that entire operation and that plot. Um, even though it ended up taking place after his death, he was involved with radicalizing and funding at least one of the, the Koachi brothers uh, in attacking um, cartoonists who Aulaki was among the first to really call for the murder of. You know, so what, one of the things I point out in the book is Al-Qaeda, of course, were not fans of the cartoons and, and had made a number of statements about it. Uh, Bin Laden made a couple of sort of short statements about the sort of Muhammad cartoons controversies or essentially the, the wider controversy of Western satirizing of Islam or disrespecting of Islam. Uh, but really it was Al-Laki who sat down and took the effort to really create a religious justification for uh, and, and finding a, a religious Islamic precedence for killing people who insult Muhammad. And he finds a story from the early years of Islam, uh, Muhammad's life, where he, he, which he interprets from a hadith, uh, which he interprets as essentially Muhammad having a, a poet killed for insulting him. And he'll use that. And re really, that has continued to inspire jihadist activism in the West, in particular America. A number of ISIS-related cases have been about the targeting of people like Kamala Geller, uh, anti-Muslim activists who've been encouraging Muhammad uh, 
lampooning of Muhammad. We had, you know, draw Muhammad cartoon day and things like this. Uh, a number of uh, plots of ISIS, uh, inspired ISIS plots in the U.S. have involved people inspired by Al-Laki to target people insulting uh, Islam. So absolutely, we're still seeing his fingerprints all over a lot of stuff now. Uh, and we'll, we'll continue to do so. And kind of piggybacking off of what you've just said, this idea of his commentary, and like you said, a lot of it comes from specific texts and religious texts, but do you see Awalaki incorporating his own views into the commentary? And if so, what type of views is he promoting? Or was he promoting? Yes, well, I think, of course, uh, his, all of his interpretations are... Um, you know, you can see are rooted in a pre-existing traditions. So as I'm in his earliest work, what we see is an obvious influence uh, of Islamist thinkers, people like Sayyid Qutb, Abu Ala Maududi. These are, you know, key foundational figures of Islam, is, Islamist thought. Qutb, uh, key Muslim Brotherhood ideologue. Uh, Maududi, founder of Jamaat Islami, essentially a Muslim Brotherhood uh, sister organization in, in South Asia. Um, so what you see early on is regular reference to those kind of um, figures, which, again, it's not evidence of someone necessarily on the path to violence. And, and you can absolutely, you know, follow Qutub's work or, 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 you know, enjoy that the way he interprets Islam without becoming a violent jihadist. Um, but it's also would be seen by many people and, and Salafis, particularly sort of non-jihadi Salafis using people like Qutub in your explanations of the Quran and the Hadith is, is seen as a major red flag and as, as, a, as, as a sort of a, a, a possible avenue towards taking those ideas to more violent conclusions. So he was very keen to, uh, you know, present Islam as not simply uh, an, a religion, um, but more as a political ideology and, and as a blueprint as providing the blueprint uh, for uh, society uh, as, so, and, and nothing else. So Quran and Hadith is the, the basis of law. These were ideas that actually are not necessarily uh, Salafi ideas. They are more Islamist ideas. The idea of the modern nation state being run as an Islamic state is actually much more of a modern Islamist idea than it is a sort of ancient one or a Salafi one. So early on, we saw the this this fusion as i mentioned of, of salafi thought with islamist activism which really is um a pretty necessary component ideologically of becoming a jihadist so my argument is that once 9 11 happened and the world started particularly the, the world uh as it concerned muslims started changing both in the west and and, and abroad and policies you know more aggressive domestic and, and foreign policies were, were becoming, we're developing and we're being implemented. These are the, 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 the pre-existing view that Awlaki had of Islam in the West and the role that Islam had and, and the threat of, his, of the West. Um, really, he started seeing the events of the war on terror through a pre-existing ideological frame, which was that you have Islam and you have the West, and these are two things that are perpetually in conflict. And that's really how he saw it really even earlier on. He, he really saw the West as this sort of direct threat to Islamic belief, to Islamic identity. Um, he saw it as a, as a deliberate threat, not just a sort of, it didn't just happen to be destroying Islam. It was deliberately destroying Islam. 
Uh, and so as, as, as 9-11 played, uh, as after 9-11, as the war on terror played out, he was very, it was very easy for him to see all of the reactions to 9-11 as really um, part of a much broader effort to destroy the religion. So it wasn't very hard for him to start taking on much more hardened views on what to, how to react to what he saw as a really accelerating threat. So once he endorses violent jihad, you don't see this sort of shocking 180. All of a, he's not all of a sudden using brand new sources or saying brand new things. Really, actually, his interpretation of, of Islam and how it should be understood and implemented is effectively the same throughout. What you see is a slight, well, not a slight, but a rather large change in his view on what, how, to, how to go about both responding to the threat and progressing the goals of Islam. And eventually, he pretty much decides that nonviolent activism is, is not going to work in the U.S., he even says himself, I tried that. I had that experience. It didn't work. Um, I was hounded out of, of America, as, as he, as he um, sort of frames it. And really the only effective way now to respond to these threats is through, uh, through, through, through violence. Uh, and something he had never uh, you know, sort of renounced before. So it wasn't like he, he was making huge changes. But what it meant was that when, as he started more openly endorsing jihadism, he had this huge fall, you know, base of followers who some of whom, a number of whom continued to go on that journey with him as he evolved. So did they. And, and I think certainly the a couple of the case studies that the book looks at of individuals who were uh, inspired by him shows similar journeys taking place, journeys that are at points uh, impacted by Olaki and, and sort of, so for example, we have uh, Nidal Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter, I think November 2009, uh, he, was a Fort, he was an army major at the time, army psychologist, goes into Fort Hood and, and kills, uh, I think about 13 of, of his colleagues, uh, of US soldiers, um, in what was at the time, I think the biggest terrorist attack in the US since 9-11. Uh, uh, Nidal Hassan's story as recounted in, in the book is one of someone who went through a similar kind of evolution and who was impacted. Uh, and what's key to remember about the, the people that Aulaki influenced, either directly or indirectly, is what you usually see is a confluence of things. And uh, not least is sort of a moments of these people's lives where, you, where that have, for one reason or another, made them look for new explanations of, of the world, new ways of understanding themselves. Moments of, for want of a better word, vulnerability, where um, Aulaki is able to give explanations to them that they hadn't really come across before and uh, create sort of new meaning in their lives. And in Nidal Hassan's case, we have someone who wasn't very religious, and that's a common beginning of a story, though not always the story, uh, who had grown up in the U.S., Palestinian parents who, you know, who had run a, a store for many years. Uh, and one of the, one of the sort of major events in his life was, was the death of his mother. He was very close to her. And when she died uh, in Virginia uh, in the 90s, uh, he had cared for her, you know, every day. Um, when she died, she had her funeral uh, in Virginia. And the person who presided over the funeral rites was Anwar Awlaki, who at the time was uh, the preacher in the area. And so if you can imagine that moment of Nidal Hassan's life of great shock and, and, and upset and a possibility of him, you know, becoming what is often referred to as a, a religious or, or an identity seeker, someone looking for uh, new things, new ideas. 
if you can imagine that moment in his life was the moment he also came across Aulaki, it's kind of a, a ridiculous coincidence. And that's the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of these things, they happen by chance. And, and he was grat with guilt about the death of his mother. He was worried his mother was going to go to hell. Um, and he started feeling like he had to repent for what his parents had done, which is essentially as he saw it, they had been running um, a store that was selling alcohol. Uh, and as he became more religious, uh, he started feeling that he needed to um, make up for the sins of his parents, hopefully that this would help them in the afterlife. And so he starts adopting a much more conservative form of Islam. And he thinks back and he thinks back to that preacher who was at his mom's funeral and goes back to his work again. And at this point, Awlaki has become much more strident, much more jihadi. Uh, this is the, the later two parts of, two, of the early 2000s. So he returns to Awlaki's work in this own process of his own that he, as he's becoming more religious and conservative. And he comes across Awlaki's work at a time when it was also becoming more radical and extreme. And so you had this confluence of, of events for him where he really starts to struggle with, be, you know, he's bought into the idea that there's a war on Islam taking place. He's bought into the idea that jihad is a legitimate form of response, yet he is still a U.S. soldier. Uh, and if you can imagine the kind of pressure on your identity you're facing then, really, it's, I, I believe in the, the idea of the Ummah. I believe in the, the idea of helping it. I believe that possibly the United States now is involved in a very aggressive effort against Islam, and yet I'm still part of it. You know, how do I, what do I do? How do I make sense of it? And you see someone going through that in their discussions with colleagues that I recount in the book. I was also lucky enough to be involved in, in interviewing him. Uh, a colleague of mine, Catherine Pop, wrote a, a paper on, on the interview she conducted with him uh, and was kind enough to involve me in that process and share some of the unpublished parts. And what you see um, essentially is someone who was, was, was going through uh, this struggle with their own identity and was having Alaki as the guide. Uh, not directly. They did email each other, but really um, they were fairly rudimentary conversations. But he was l reading and, and studying and listening to all of Alaki's work that was essentially doing, um, was explaining to Nidal Hassan uh, the identity crisis he was facing, but also was offering him the solutions to how to fix it, how to overcome this great hypocrisy that he started seeing within himself. And, um, and you can see that he was constantly struggling with that. And finally, the, the um, activist Muslim part of it took over. And he decided the only way to really account for what his parents had done and what he had done as a Muslim soldier was to fight back in, in the best way he could. And that was um, take his gun and, and, and kill US soldiers that were gonna deploy uh, to Iraq. And, and, the, and, and of course the chapter goes in much more detail about this, but what's important to keep in mind to link back to uh, your initial question was if, if you ask, Nidal Hassan, as we did, what are what kind of what are the works of his that you found most of Awlaki's that you found most influential? What you often hear, not just from Nidal Hassan, but from others, they won't necessarily cite the openly jihadist stuff. They will cite the earlier, more religious um, histories that I was discussing, um, his early lectures. So that's really important to keep in mind when we talk about what drives some of these people. Uh, they were still inspired by the wider religious discussion, and they felt that Awlaki was the one who most effectively explained jihadism as a natural part of Islam. And what they really gained the most out of was Awlaki's discussions of the Quran and the histories of Islam, rather than, of course, the jihadi stuff is what it convinced them to actually fight. But that was the, the fighting decision was was comes after the adoption of a much 
larger narrative and story about Islam and about themselves and about what they can do uh, in this great uh, story that's being told. Uh, and so those are uh, one of the things that's worth pointing out is, is, is often the, the most influential they, stuff of his they find is, is not the more strident jihadi stuff. And one of the other things he says, which kind of confirmed the, the claims I had made or I, I make in the book, is he says, you know, Anwar al-Raki was the one who really explained to me what the war on Islam looked like. I began to understand that it wasn't simply uh, these wars abroad, this physical effort. There was an ideological war against Islam. And he's the one who made that clear to me, essentially admitting that the war on Islam was made a reality to him by al-Raki's work. And that's very important. And that's one of the key arguments the book makes, or the, the key things of the book teases out is how do you, and the wider thing that can be taken from the book, not just within jihadism, but more widely is how do you convince someone of uh, an existential threat they face? Because that's a pretty useful first step, right? As I mentioned earlier, in getting people um, to become activists is to, is to present some kind of existential threat, be it real or, or imagined. And I can think of a couple of both real and imagined existential threats that are out there today. Um, so, it's, that's a key, key part, and you see it in all the case studies that, that I cover, um, is uh, people kind of having this awakening about a threat that, that was essentially under their noses the whole time as far as they look back on it. They think, wow, how did I not see then uh, what I do now? That, you know, how Alaki explained to me that actually, wow, all these things that are going on in my life that I've ignored or not taken seriously, these were all actually uh, very clear signs of threat um, and of, of, this, of this conspiracy unfolding in front of me and it's fine my eyes have been opened you know that's very and that all comes from this really long stretch of a body of work that Olaki has from and without the early stuff without the foundational discussions of the early history of Islam and the reinvigorating of that for western audiences his jihadi stuff would not have been, have been anywhere near as impactful or effective <clears throat> would you say that that's one of the main points of his communication strategy within his recording sermons. And then of course, later on, he was involved with Inspire magazine, but would that be sort of the, the thing that sticks the most with individuals that listen to his work? I think ideologically, possibly, I mean, in terms of the, you know, they, they all have adopted, a, a view of the war on Islam as being this multifaceted thing, right? Not just this physical effort where this war on terror taking place, but actually, um, you know, being able to see this threat in, in, in all over in, in your in your day to day experiences. That I think, yes, would probably be the because that is the foundational frame through which they're you know they're viewing everything and they're reacting to everything. By the once they adopt it, then and you see this again, and, and the book does try to place the jihad movement more widely and, and jihadist terrorism within a wider context of, um, you know, sort of high-risk activism conducted by social movements. And so there are lessons to be drawn from this <clears throat> more widely. And, and sort of one of the things the book tries to, to say is if you understand terrorism from jihadists that we see today as um, really a part of the kind of activism that um, other social movements take. So if you can, you can, you don't look at jihadi terrorism as this exceptional, unique thing. Actually place it in the context of um, movements recruiting people 
to con you know to carry out acts of, of activism, be they low or high risk, to further the goals of that movement. <clears throat> and once you do that, you can actually understand uh, the phenomenon a lot more. It's, it's demystifies it, um, and you de-exceptionalize it, which is important. It's something that we that I think terrorism studies has sometimes been accused of doing is treating jihadism and jihadi terrorism as this kind of new phenomenon after 9-11. But actually, if we just understand that and terrorism more widely as essentially violent activism conducted by one type of social movement or another, um, you can actually start understanding it more. And if you look at, for example, far right movements that, that believe in a conspiracy to wipe out the white race, they also will view what could have been previously seen as innocuous things as being actually proof of, of an attempt to uh, replace Christianity or, 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 or white or the white race, you know, so I often use the example of sort of, you have a lot of anti-Muslim right-wing activists in, in, in Europe, in America, who are um, pretty obsessed about the idea, for example, and here in the UK, one of the things that upset them a lot is, is the availability of halal meat, right? In, in this is, uh, meat that has been killed ritually in a way that's acceptable to Muslims, like the equivalent of kosher food for Jews. They, they view the, the availability of halal meat in, in areas that have high Muslim populations as proof uh, of an Islamization conspiracy, right? Proof of the conspiracy to replace Christianity and the white race with, with Islam. So there's this, you see this all everywhere. It is this, you know, viewing of, uh, once you get someone to view events through that existential threat frame, then you've got a that's a big first step towards getting them to actually do something about it. Um, because, you know, often you can have people who are maybe sympathetic to a movement, but won't actually do anything about it until they really see perhaps a more direct individual threat uh, on themselves. And so probably the resounding thing, and as I mentioned, I describe it in the book, is the, the centrifugal force of the whole story is, of course, this what is effectively a conspiracy theory, the war on Islam. It's just about how you sell it to which audience. And in Alaki's case, it's he's selling it to Westerners, right? If you're selling it, as I mentioned, to a Syrian or an Iraqi, you do it very differently. So in your opinion, what would you consider Alaki's legacy to be? Is it being this connective tissue across the global jihadist movement? Or is it being able to incite individuals towards taking action? Let's hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I think we have two contributions that are probably, you know, they're connected. Uh, the first, as I mentioned, really, is, is he played a big role in establishing the Western iteration of the jihad movement um, as, a, as a force, as something that essentially by, by now really is almost its own thing. It's an indigenous, it's, it's, it's being created, it's propaganda, it, it's, it's, it's activities are, are being uh, generated domestically now, right? There, there, are, there are American jihadists, there are British jihadists, there are people who are creating messages that are organic from their own communities. Um, I think Alaki played a big role in, in making that possible, in, in establishing this accessible form of the movement in the West. And so a lot of what we're seeing today can certainly be linked to the fact that he was the one who really said, look, and this is where we go back to the social movement stuff, you know, organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are organizations within, with, that, are, that are part of a wider social movement. Al-Laki knew full well that in the West, you could not really effectively establish a, a real organization, an actual physical presence 
uh, an official, you know, jihadi presence in the West. That's just, it's an environment that is not conducive to that. He also knew that, in fact, abroad, in the basis of the jihad movement, Al-Qaeda, you know, that these were all very vulnerable. You know, bin Laden was going to be killed one day. He knew that. He, he knew as well that he, he would die one day. So what he needed to do was, was to get people to think past organizations and, and individuals and leaders and really view themselves as part of this wider movement and, and something that's connected through social movements, really the number of things that connect people within them. And one of which is, of course, ideas. The other is collective identity and a shared sense of who they are and their shared history, shared experiences, shared beliefs, shared language, shared goals. He articulated all of that, right? He, he articulated a, a jihadi identity that was accessible to Westerners. And he also articulated the ideas. So those two components of a social movement, he helped really establish in a way that few others had done. He's not the only one who did it, but one of the reasons we have a sort of our, our own indigenous, really at this point, jihadi subcultures in America and in, in Europe, you know, he's a big, big part of that. So uh, he also has a more strategic um, contribution, or at least, again, I don't want to give him all the credit for all this stuff because he, he's just one part of it, but certainly the uh, toning down of expectations when it comes to terrorist attacks in the West, so going from the 9-11 style or the 7-7 type of, uh, of, of terrorist spectacular to the much lower key individual acts of jihadi terrorism that we see really as, as characterizing much of the uh, threat, not all of it, but a lot of a big component of the threat in the West and in particular in America is what we call inspired attackers, right? People who essentially pick up the ideas, uh, feel part of them, become uh, as if they, you know, develop a sense that they are part of the movement. Again, something Alaki did um, by essentially saying, look, we have this movement that has so many different components to it. There's a fighting component, of course, and, and if you really can do it, travel to Afghanistan, Iraq, or you know, Pakistan and join one of these groups, fine. But there are many other ways to contribute. And again, coming from him, legitimizing the, these ideas, these, these other forms of activism was very important. Uh, and so the goal, though, was to get people in the movement, maybe at a low entry level, as it were, and hope that they kind of move uh, through the stages of sort of lower risk activism. So he will say things like creating propaganda online, recruiting your friends, getting, getting people to read the right stuff, translating things. If you're doing that for the jihad movement, you're part of the movement. You should consider yourself a member, as it were. That gives people a sense of um, being part of something, um, at the same time adopting a new, a new identity. And the hope is that as they involve themselves in lower forms of activism, protests and other lower risk forms, they upgrade or move further and closer to more high risk ventures eventually hopefully culminating in actual attacks so by creating this more accessible movement in the west alaki also opened up the opportunity for people to essentially act on the movement's behalf without any direct command and control and i don't need to go into too much detail of course we you know, people know about lone actor terrorism but the the kind of the adoption the acceptance of it as a as a legitimate pursuit of jihad in the west wasn't sort of this straightforward thing and you know we know that bin laden was not very keen on the idea. He wanted to still focus on a uh, spectacular type of attacks. He didn't like the idea of essentially loosening the reins and allowing you know, any old person to, to act on behalf of the movement. He worried that it would uh, lower its status. It would, it, it would perhaps lead to more Muslims being targeted and dying. He wanted more control. Alaki didn't. And the book kind of gives an account of um, what was a, a kind of, I wouldn't say a direct 
tug of war between different sections of Al-Qaeda, but there certainly was a gravitation eventually towards the acceptance of Awlaki's suggestion, which is we should be encouraging uh, these unconnected attacks. Uh, and of course, today, if you look at the, the ISIS presence in, in, the, in Europe and America, what you have it, to some extent is a continuation of, of that strategy of, of encouraging low-level stuff. And, and the idea behind it, is, as the book kind of explains, and again, in wider understanding of, of, of terrorism, is you don't necessarily need the spectaculars. You just need to maintain some kind of presence. Um, and, and the only realistic way to maintain a presence in the West is these low-level attacks. Anything else, you know, we can't really, you know, the, the odds are, are too stacked against us. And so managing to maintain a presence in what is a really inhospitable environment security-wise for the jihad movement is a huge success, really. And, and I use an example in one of the uh, opening parts of one of the chapters where in London, um, outside the Natural History Museum a few years ago, uh, there was a, someone jumped the curb and, and hit a, a couple of people in a car. Uh, thankfully, no one was, was too badly injured. But one of the first things the police had to do was go on social media or go on the press conferences and rule out terrorism, right? Um, a car had jumped a curb in central London and, and he had, they had to, without invitation, rule out terrorism. And that's something that has become a normal experience. Uh, you know, a random stabbing in a, in a major city center, uh, a, a strange kind of car accident in a major city center. Often, terrorism has to be ruled out. You know, in the 90s or even in the early 2000s, you didn't have to rule out terrorism every time something like that happened. Uh, that alone, the fact that we are constantly having, you know, having the idea of jihadist terrorism in the back of our minds when we hear about a random stabbing that was probably someone having a, a mental episode. Or, or what was, you know, jumping up the curb, which, of course, the London one that I mentioned was an accident. Uh, someone, you know, just um, took the wrong turn or whatever it was. Uh, the fact that it's, it's always in the back of our minds is a major success when you're talking about what terrorism is in the end, which is propaganda. And the goal of propaganda, to some extent, is, is to popularize or maintain the presence of a movement or of a group. Uh, so if you imagine that every that, that that's where we have to turn to every time, then uh, that's a great legacy, really, for, for someone who uh, wants to further the aims of, of a terrorist movement or group uh, is to you know keep our keep our subconscious or, or part of our minds constantly worrying about it is is a, quite an achievement, really. There's so much detail in this book, and I wish we had all the time to discuss so much more. But for time constraints, I want to just hand over to you a moment for final thoughts or something that maybe we haven't touched on before we end the show that you really would like to talk about. Um, I do encourage people to read the book because it's such a deep dive. The research is amazing that you've done, Alex. So um, I'll hand the floor over to you. Thank you. Uh, I suppose one of the things uh, that I talk about a bit in the conclusion and that it's throughout the book is this. Firstly, you know, the ongoing, you know, there, are, there will be always debates about what are the real drivers of so-called radicalization and, you know, what are the, the role of root causes uh, versus the role of, of ideas? You know, why do people get involved in violence and why are people radicalized? And uh, this book does not necessarily, it's, it's not trying to offer you a new theory of radicalization or, or you know, explain, give you a, a completely watertight explanation of how and why people join or, or become part uh, of terrorist groups. But, but 
what we see in the story of Alaki, at least, and of the people who, who follow him, is a combination, of course, of, of, of a number of these things, of personal, negative personal experiences, uh, a sense of a communal persecution, combined with a set of ideas that explain it, give cause and reason for it, and give effective ways of responding to it. Um, and, and of course, this is all presented as the, you know, legitimate interpretation uh, of Islam. So, and what you see is not necessarily sort of bloodthirsty uh, madmen in these, in a number of these people who were inspired by Allah, but actually what you often see is a, a misplaced, certainly misplaced sense of, of altruism, a sense that they want to be part of a project that is going to make the world better. And they, they, they do believe that in many cases. And, and Alaki was very effective at getting them to that place, to explain to them that really the greatest crime on earth today is that we are living under laws that are created by man, by an imperfect being. Freedom, really, as, as true freedom comes from living under the, the rules and laws of, the, of an omnipotent being. And we have those rules and laws codified in our primary text. So there's a sense that you are saving people, you are freeing people. And so, you know, these, these ideas we have in our, in our societies of freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of thought and whatever else, we have to understand that they can be completely manipulated and switched around in, in very effective ways. And actually, you know, if you were to accept the idea that, that God provides you the perfect blueprint for society, then it, you know, it's pretty easy to believe then that any effort to undermine that is a very negative and, and dangerous and may in fact justify great acts of terror and violence uh, and abuse in order to get to that better place. Um, and I know you were talking uh, recently with, with J.M. Berger about his, uh, I think a couple of things, I know his, his novel, which I haven't read yet, but also these the issues of utopia, dystopias. Um, and he's written an interesting book about this. And of course, you know, the presentation of, of a utopia. Um, and in fact, I won't get into this too much. And I'd be interested on, on jams and your own views, in fact, on this, but uh, Margaret Atwood, one of the great authors of, of dystopia of, of, of our current time, uh, author, of course, of Bridemaid's, Bridemaid, Bridesmaid's Tale. Um, she actually writes in her introduction, I think of, I think it's Aldous Huxley's, um, or rather, no, I, I, is it Brave New World? or is, It might be 1984. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's actually uh, Brave New World, another great work of dystopia or utopia. And her point is that actually um, utopia and dystopia are the same thing. There's no difference. Uh, and she uses the term utopia dystopia, utopia dash dystopia. Because in the end, um, to achieve the utopia, there's a lot of people who are going to suffer and probably die and otherwise have their freedoms ripped from them in order to achieve that. So for those people, that's a dystopia. For the people who are achieving the, the, that perfect society, it's a utopia. But actually, it's the same idea. It's a, it, in the end, there's no real difference. And why do I say that? Because it, it links back, because we are talking about people committing great acts of violence and, and, and causing great suffering, but in pursuit of... Um, what they believe is, is a perfect society, but what, what would be a nightmare society for a Yazidi, for example, right? So there's only a select group of people who are gonna, who are gonna enjoy this utopia. For, for many others, it will be the exact opposite. Um, so in the end, it's, a, it's 
they are really two sides of the same coin as, as ideas, in my view. And, and Atwood puts this much better than I do. And I would recommend anyone look into that. There's a very good edition of, of Brave New World that she uh, she writes the intro to. And so, and finally, I, I wanted to point out that we, act, we, you know, and I began my my concluding thoughts with this idea that um, you have to, the story of how someone becomes radicalized is usually a combination of ideas, experiences, grievances, and moments of serendipity, random moments, as I mentioned before, timing. You know, you're coming across a certain preacher, a certain thought, at a certain moment in your life. But also, you know, when we talk about the role of grievances in getting in, in terrorism, right? We, there's often, you know, schools of thought that say really terrorism is a response to uh, some type of socioeconomic or other type of grievance, which of course it can be. But what you have to see with people like Olaki is the ability to generate grievance, right? So they're not just highlighting and exploiting pre-existing grievances in their audiences, they are creating new ones. Uh, they are pointing out grievances in those people's lives that they were not aware of until it was done. Uh, and so you can, when we talk about the role of grievances, it's, it's a bit simplistic to simply discuss them as something that are uh, actual pre-existing experiences of the individual that they're conscious of. Sometimes it takes a, a, a charismatic leadership figure like Olaki and a, or what we can call a movement entrepreneur, this is what, what a sociologist might refer to them as, or a social movement scholar. The role of people like that is to identify and highlight grievances for people who, what, that they had not yet been conscious of. And once you do that, you're opening up opportunities uh, to get them to believe a, a completely different uh, uh, story about how the world is run and, and what should be done about it. Well, I think you've given us so much to think about. I, I see that we could have a lot more discussion or even do another discussion with JM and you as well on this utopia concept, because that's, it's very interesting. And, and I see exactly what you're saying. And this idea of creating grievances as well, or opening someone's eyes to them and highlighting it. It's such an important way of looking at things because it's, it's used in so many different narratives across so many different spectrums. So, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but unfortunately our time is up, but this has been a fascinating discussion. I thank you for coming on the show and I highly recommend listeners to read Alex's book. It's incitement Anwar Awalaki's Western Jihad. And thank you so much for being on the Loopcast. Thanks so much, Chelsea. I had a great time.